0: Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, I'm speaking with Mike Johnson. Mike is the CISO of Lyft, where he's responsible for security, data privacy, and a few other things he can't talk about. He's been in the security field long enough to be able to use decades as a measure. In his time, he's seen things, heard things, and shared his opinion on a great many things. Prior to becoming Lyft's first CISO, he was at Salesforce working in various information security roles. In this episode, we discuss being an organization's first CISO, building a world-class detection and response team, securing a development team, building security culture, data privacy, cybersecurity as a team sport, looking for non-traditional skills, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. Well, Mike, thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. How are you today? Doing great. Uh, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. You've uh, been following a lot of what you kind of contribute and do online with uh, some of the LinkedIn posts. So we've had some exchange, but I'm glad we're able to kind of get this
1: recording down. Yeah, I think, uh, gosh, it's been a few months that we've been trying to make this happen. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad we finally made to make we're able to make it happen. Yeah, and fortunately with
0: my schedule, until I can stop, uh, so some, maybe some. Out of the country attackers from hitting small businesses, it would uh, it would free up <laughs> my time. But until that happens, uh, I have to run at run at a pretty quick pace. But you know, for for yourself, it's actually an interesting story, at least from the research I've done. You're the first CISO that Lyft had put together, and so two aspects of that I think is interesting. You know, one it's uh, what I see with a lot of you know startup companies is. At what point do they think that like, okay, we need to bring in security because the first couple phases of growth are all about growth? It's bottom line. How do we build or you know build or fail? We got to kind of continue to go through that. And I always I don't always see security as a forethought. So at what point do you know? Did they kind of say, hey, we we have to bring in a security leader? And how did you kind of connect with them?
1: So I I think it was really looking at our growth rate uh, if we. Look back to when I first started talking with Lyft. It was about the time of the big delete Uber movement, mm-hmm. and Lyft saw a big spike in growth at that point. And so I, I haven't ever asked specifically. Uh, maybe I should go ask that question. <laughs> but uh, I, I think it really was there was this uh, change in the growth curve that made them realize, hey, we're we're growing faster than than we had been in the past we really need to double down on security and that seemed to be the right time for it to, to bring in a CISO.
0: Gotcha. And, you know, I guess how, I guess, looking back at your past was the timing right for you. I mean, you've kind of built some other programs. What's, I guess, new or different about uh, taking on something like this as maybe some of the things that you've done kind of stepping back over the years.
1: So, at, at so I was at Salesforce for nine years, um, and I usually tell people I had about three different careers at at Salesforce, right. and um, you know the last one was uh, was building Salesforce's detection and response team, and I felt that I had done what I had set out to do, which was to build a world class detection and response team, had a great uh, leadership team, uh, it was. I, frankly, they were doing all the work. Uh, and so that was really the right time for me to start looking for other opportunities. And so I started looking around at what would be next in my career. and for me next was stepping beyond you know, solely detection response and uh, leading an entire security program. and I I knew that I was going to need to move to a smaller company than Salesforce in order to to get that opportunity. And so I started looking around at uh, Bay Area technology companies that were companies that I would want to work for, that were doing interesting things, that had uh, values that I shared, that had a culture that I was interested in. And uh, Lyft bubbled up very quickly to the top of my list. And it turned out that the uh, person who runs engineering here, uh, Pete Morelli, he and I used to work together at Salesforce back in the day. And uh, a quick side tangent: you, it's hard to swing a dead cat uh, in the tech industry in San Francisco and not hit somebody who worked at uh, at Salesforce at some point. <laughs> uh, um, it, it is kind of one of those uh, one of those communities. Uh, so I reached out to Pete and I said, you know, hey, I um, am, am thinking about making a change. Uh, what What's the security team? What's the the security program like at Lyft? And he said, hey, let's have coffee. And uh, we sat down and had coffee. And uh, he said, you know, it's 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 funny that you reach out to me because I'm getting ready to post the CISO job next week. Uh, and so we, I said, that's great. We should have a further conversation. Uh, and so it kind of went from there. Of uh, it was really um, right place, right time, right people, all came together uh, to bring me here to Lyft.
0: Yeah, you know it's funny. You know, uh, often we get that question asked a lot. You know, geez, how do you, how do you find these opportunities in, in cybersecurity? It's like probably at a bar or a coffee shop. It's so often yeah. there. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's the casual conversation where it's less formalized. I, you know, I think of the last couple she's even side ventures and all the different things, even the show, it's, it all started with God, you know, there's just some sit down where you go, Hey, let's, let's explore this. And I, I don't know if people appreciate that enough of just getting out there into the community and just going to have
1: coffee. You never know where it'll lead. Yeah. I, am uh, so there's a coffee shop, uh, right next to our office that I, I kind of view as my second office. Um, because I, I frequently will have coffee with people there and, you know, it might be, at the time of conversation um totally something social but what comes out of that is hey you know we we kind of get along maybe we should work together uh and so the, those side conversations those social settings uh can really turn into connections down the road that um maybe a year later turn into a job opportunity or turn into a um Someone that you can learn a lesson from, that you can then apply to your own your own challenges.
0: Oh, definitely. And so, kind of stepping back to the the kind of lift aspects of this. Obviously, it's a it's now a a pretty well known company. Um, You know, it's it's out there developing. I guess without having to give away too much of the secret sauce, where do where do you take a startup? That's also in a kind of a unique space where there's really you know one competitor, but you guys are also disruptors. <laughs> like how do you build that security program? and what does it look like um, like now, and where do you kind of envision it going?
1: so in in a lot of ways, we're just another tech company. Um, you know a lot of our tech stack looks the same as Netflix's tech stack or Facebook's tech stack or Google's tech stack. and and in fact, part of that is because a lot of the engineers at Lyft came from those companies. And what that really means is most of the security challenges aren't actually unique to Lyft. Uh, they're the same challenges that that other companies face, other technology companies uh, that are in a growth mode, that are heavily cloud-invested. So in, in a lot of ways, our the the challenges that we're facing and the problems that we're needing to solve are the same that everyone else has. Uh, I I think the, you know, I'd mentioned growth and that's really what's probably a bit more unique for us is how quickly we're growing, what that growth curve looks like and how the curve seems to, you know, the curve itself seems to keep uh, changing on us. Uh, So our rate of growth is also, you know, increasing over time. And so that's really, um, you know, what's probably different from us than another tech company is just how fast we're growing. But other than that, you know, we use AWS, uh, we use all of AWS's services, we write Python code, uh, and so our, our security challenges are very similar to to others. Well,
0: I guess you know, with with some of those too, you know, kind of looking at startups and, and companies, Joe. pass, obviously, past startup now, but you know, as as another tech company, is getting that kind of management buy-in, do you feel that you get that level of support that you need you know, from above? There's that a hurdle that's always there. And I'm not saying that you have to throw anybody on the bus, but I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's a challenge to, to sit there, kind of be that in between the tech team and the management team.
1: So one of the features uh, that was really critical to me when I was making my decision to, to join Lyft was that that buy-in is there. Um, so so my boss runs engineering and if I'm having a challenge on around security, that means he's having a challenge around security and so he's he's bought in both where he sits in the organization uh, but also as I said, he and I go back a few years and so there there's a trust built up um, that I think I have an advantage of that I came into that you know that i came in to lift with that trust already being in place but once that trust is there and you have that advocate that can drive change in the organization um i, I would say i've had an easier job here at lyft um than certainly some of my peers at other companies have faced
0: understood And you know one of the one of the things too that you know we I think we all try to preach it in security leadership roles as, you know, bringing that culture of security where, you know, security is everybody's job. But I've, I've certainly seen that challenge with engineers where, in fast moving companies where they say, you know, we got, we got to push product, we got to get the next feature out. And how do you, how do you kind of communicate that, get most of the business and the, the people with doing hands on keyboard coding work, hey, you know, security has got to be part of what you do as we build our product.
1: So one of the great, uh, one of the great things about working for a consumer-oriented company is the majority of the employees are customers as well, and so you know every one of our employees when they're uh, taking a, a lift somewhere or or even driving a lift, we have plenty of of our employees who are also drivers. Uh, they recognize the data that's being collected, they recognize the service that's being offered, and therefore, they have that uh, personal buy-in, that personal understanding of the value of the data and how important it is to them, and that if something were to happen to the service that they use, um, that they would be impacted by it. And so, therefore, there's already a a baseline level of buy-in that they care because their their data is at stake as well. So it's it's almost a, a shared mission from the get go, simply because they're customers too.
0: Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, when when you when you have uh, that touch point with the customer, that's also the developer. I I think that that does make the connection that maybe a lot of other organizations don't have necessarily have that opportunity because they never see it from that side.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it was a it was a bit of a challenge that I that. I had at Salesforce, um, you know, Salesforce really has a strong security culture, but it took more work to get there because there wasn't necessarily the the personal buy-in, uh, on, on a fundamental level.
0: Gotcha. Now, one of the things too, is that when you look at the way that, you know, the company develops and technology develops the... There's obviously a lot of concerns too about privacy, about how data is being collected. And that's, sometimes I've, you know, with some of the companies I've worked with, um, they realize at least from the engineering teams of, hey, this is a cool feature, let's put this in. And there's not always that checkpoint of saying, wait, should we be doing this? Just because we can doesn't mean we should, Uh, because there's there's other implications, you know, when it comes to a very connected world that we're all in, uh, between mobile devices and applications and compute, Where do you kind of put those stopgaps in to say, well, hold on a second. Should we be doing this because there are security and privacy concerns down the road?
1: So I'm responsible not only for security here at Lyft. I'm also responsible for data privacy. And uh, so I work very closely with product teams, with other engineering leaders on ensuring that, you know, not only is security kept in mind, but also privacy is kept in mind. And so, that as part of just our standard specs of building a new product, there are questions specifically around security, around data privacy, that then allows us to have those conversations of, uh, you know, perhaps it, you know this data collection over here seems innocuous, but here's here's really the implications of us collecting this data, and we can have those conversations because it's just part of the process where those questions are asked, where developers, product managers have to write, you know, have to answer those questions, uh, that then bring us all to the all to the table together to discuss, you know, do we really need to do this? Could we perhaps collect a little bit less data? Um, Could we use some of our existing data? Or frankly, if we really believe there's value, uh, value in collecting this data in order to Offer this new service. Um, how are we going to disclose this to our customers? That um, you know we need to collect this additional data. Here's why. Um, here's the service that you're going to get from that. And and we can have all, all those have all those conversations as the service or feature or product is being built. And we can prepare for for what comes next based on those discussions. And and sometimes we've scuttled entire features. Um, entire products entire services when we sat down and said uh, here's the implications of collecting this data and the product manager says whoa I you know I, I hadn't thought about that um, yes I agree we should just set this set this feature aside and, and not do it
0: gotcha so when those decisions are made is it is it primarily coming from you or their folks in legal where does that uh, kind of light bulb moment get thrown onto the to an engineer that might might not have seen that
1: so it, it's uh, the, the engineers primarily are talking with us, um, but uh, we have a weekly uh, privacy committee meeting where uh, legal is involved, compliance is involved. Uh, several teams are involved and come together and talk about, you know, hey, uh, there's this thing that, that an engineering team is talking with us about. You know, are there greater implications that maybe we're not even seeing? And so, you know, we're we're sort of the uh, the entry point to that to those discussions. But uh, as is necessary, we loop in legal uh, and into those conversations, and you know, maybe then there's another set of discussions between us, legal compliance, and the uh, product manager or engineering team.
0: Gotcha. a so- you know, the one thing that I, I think some other folks on the show have said, particularly in the CISO roles, is you, know, you got to make security a team sport. Um, you know, it can't be siloed in necessarily one one place. And that kind of goes back to that whole culture. But, you know, trying to get it seen from above, too. So there is that operational risk understanding and say, yeah, I think it, it can flow down to the products and the people team. So where they say, yeah, this, this could be an issue for me, too. So trying to get everybody involved. It sounds like that's even at the high level what you try to do
1: yeah yeah it, it really is uh, trying to make it uh, c- cut across the entire company. And so you know again, everyone's bought into it. um I, I have to imagine there are discussions that happen. Uh, features are completely taken off the table before they even come to us. because we've had we've had these previous discussions, there's that those expectations are set. Um, and it's pervading into the into the culture overall. And we don't even have to be in the room some of the times, you know, for for people to be making the correct decisions.
0: Gotcha. So you're kind of planting those seeds well in advance. Yep. So yeah. Yep.
1: yep. That's <laughs> that's all grow. part of the culture. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but to that point too, is like when when you,
0: obviously you know you have to now be in a position to have to hire and build a team. You've built teams before. What what are some of the things that you look for um, as part of your hiring policies, practices, or, or you know? Maybe not even vetting, but sourcing people because we constantly talk about the, hey, we need. We, there's not enough people. Yeah, we need more people, mm-hmm. but there's always that option of saying, well, there's a lot of people on the planet. How do we find people that can fit these roles and and you know, and kind of recruit and develop them? But what are what are some of the things that you kind of look for, both in maybe technical and non technical skills?
1: Yeah, so so as I mentioned, I, I report to uh, the leader of of engineering here, and so we're. Fundamentally, an engineering team. So, one of the things that we're really looking for is engineering experience, uh, and you know the ability to work in a uh, an environment that that has to scale. Uh, people who are used to manual processes or manual intervention aren't really going to have uh, the experience. Uh, in order to come to lift and and thrive and and have that impact. So really one of the key things that we're looking for is engineering experience or an engineering background in order to um, either be an engineer yourself. You know I, I, I hire s- software engineers directly onto my team um, or to be able to work closely with engineers across the company. Uh, and to be able to have those conversations and and sit down with an engineer and and understand what they're saying and to to be able to communicate back with them um, in a reasonable fashion. So that's kind of one of the the big things we look for is uh, engineering experience or an engineering background. Uh, We also look for um, that ability to uh, scale yourself through other means, um, so maybe you are a great team builder. Um, maybe you are really good at writing up repeatable processes that somebody else can go implement through automation. Um, but you know, again, it's back to that scaling and 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 how to scale and, and how to to be able to grow uh, with the company. Um, and I, I think the la- the last thing that I would add that we really try and look for is um uh diversity of background diversity of thought diversity of experience um so that we're challenging ourselves as a team uh that you know just because we've always done it this way it doesn't mean it's the way that we should keep doing it and if we just keep hiring the same types of people then we're going to lose that and we're going to just you know groupthink will will pervade and that will be terrible for us so you know, that's another of the uh, attributes that we're really looking for is, you know, a, a diversity, um, diverse background, diverse experience uh, in order to bring that and and challenge the status quo here. Gotcha. And, and
0: obviously, one of the things I've had in this kind of podcast come up as a, a topic of conversation quite a bit is communication skills. And it's, it's almost a baited question to say, I, I assume that... Um, communication skills are obviously just alluded to are are important, but I'm always curious how people kind of look at it too. Is it, do you think it's easier to train an engineer how to communicate or somebody that's good at communicating how to maybe do coding or engineering? Like is there, or is that not even a best way to even look at it?
1: So I, I I wouldn't look at it that way. I I would say um, we don't select primarily for communication skills. Um, And what I mean by that is, we're hiring you for some other primary attribute, uh, and you know, as long as you're not, you know, just a rock who sits in a corner who doesn't even talk during an interview, in which case we're not going to hire you in the first place. But um, we can understand the best, you know, the best way for you to communicate, and uh, and the best way for you to communicate with the types of people who you need to work with. So. Um, engineer to engineer, uh, you generally don't even need to train that. It's like, you're just speaking my language here. Um, When we're talking analysts to engineers and vice versa, or talking program managers, or we're talking um, engineering managers or something like that, um, that's something that I feel we can teach a bit uh, because it's not as fundamental. It's a uh, a slight change to what is normal for you rather than uh we're having to teach you an entire foreign language so i I think it's um you know we're we're hiring as part of the process we do some level of vetting of communication skills but once you've joined uh we can figure out the right thing
0: yeah i would imagine a lot of that if you're doing it long enough the stuff starts standing out pretty quickly
1: Yes, yes, it does.
0: And one of the things I've noticed, too, is that, you know, obviously as you try to fill talent app sites. I'm always looking to hire good people, but there's always the need. You know, you're kind of always trying to run in the red a little bit. But mm-hmm. you do find people that have some maybe different backgrounds that you say, okay, maybe they're not traditional in IT or security. You know, some of the best people I've had have had, you know, music engineering backgrounds. They've had um, that really worked well for pen testing. And then people that had management retail experience that were really good at at team building and project management and organization skills, and then, you know, really added to their security skills. But are there some kind of maybe surprising backgrounds that you found and some people that you might not have really thought, Hey, wow, that's, that's going to help out in security.
1: Um, That's a really good question. And and I I would probably have given you a different answer um, before I came to Lyft. And, And the reason why I say that is because our culture is so engineering-specific, um, someone—we're probably not going to hire someone like directly out of school, and all they've done is, um, you know, retail experience. Uh, maybe that's something further in their background, and and there's some skills that they can bring to play. Um, but we're going to be really looking for that engineering experience, and so um someone might have that back in their background back in their in their history um, and that certainly can come into play uh, and nothing is coming to mind at the moment um, other than I recently found out that a member of my team can break dance so, um, Maybe that you know. Maybe break dancing is a skill that you're trying I'm trying to, play, to, trying but, to think. Um, I've ever seen
0: that on LinkedIn. If that's like somebody you can somebody <laughs> endorse somebody for, <laughs> should
1: be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You should be able to endorse someone for breakdancing. I, I think that would be a, a, a right good out. skill to to be able to endorse people for. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And um, so, so no. I, 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 to to be frank, I, I struggle a little bit with with your question there because I'm I uh, I can't come up with it thing off the top of my head
0: well that's fair i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna lie but too many softballs but yeah (laughs) but it's good to get people thinking but you know along those you know maybe not those on but you know with when we talk about maybe non-traditional skills but also you know how how do we fill some of the skills through things like you know the i'd say that it's we're going on a good solid two years now from i'm sure you've been to rsa and black hat but you know with with words like you know uh, machine learning ai automation orchestration they they seem to be the you know, kind of words de jour when we talk about building security programs to kind of maybe fill in some of those gaps where we can't hire people. How do you view that cornucopia of terms these days?
1: Um. So I'm 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 generally very buzzword averse. I think I think a lot <laughs> of us are. Yeah. Um, and, and you know, AI is actually. Uh, there, there was recently someone on LinkedIn who was like, you know, what is the the number one item on your list of of buzzwords that you hate. And, and AI is that uh, for me. And I, I think we're a long ways away from um, replacing humans. Um, I, I like to look at a lot of these tools as augmentation. Um, and so maybe someone can look at an event sooner because it's been enriched before it got to them. Uh, and they can then say, you know, okay, this, this isn't a big deal, or, you know, oh, wow, I really need to escalate this now. Um, and maybe that was a half-hour operation for them in the past and is now a five-minute operation. So uh, probably more along the lines of efficiency rather than really necessarily changing how many people we need to hire um, or being able to say, well, you know, I've got the tools, so I don't need to hire 10 people. Um, or uh, I think some have tried to make claims of, hey, if you buy our product, then you know you've then we we take the workload of five people, and so some people think, hey, well, does that mean we're now going to lay off five people? And uh, I, I I've yet to see a tool who can actually really replace humans uh, like that. So I, I think um, what we're seeing a shift and related to the to the market and and also related to the way that we're handling security here at Lyft is a move away from manual security into automated security. Um, but there's still it's like there's more work being created faster than we can move to automation um, faster than we can scale our engineering. And that's really you know if we were bringing in more software engineers into security i think maybe we could you know move faster than we are Um, but the the reality is it's just there's always going to be more and more work uh, and we're always going to need more and more people to figure out how to solve all of that work
0: yeah it's not like we have this uh this barrel of problems and once we we kind of empty it we're done (laughs) that'd be nice but yeah it doesn't doesn't seem to be the it doesn't seem to be the case um, but when you kind of look at some of the problems that that we are trying to solve, you know, are there are there you know particular moonshots or things that you know if we really, you know, focus on this, we can move the ne- needle in cybersecurity. Like this is the one thing. Is there anything that stands out in your mind as as kind of an overarching issue?
1: So, one of the things that I, I talk a lot about is the fundamentals of of security, and so. I really look at what are those moonshots that can help us solve some of our basic problems. Uh, and one of the ones that we're working on a lot here is um, automating information about our assets uh, and and being able to link them together and being able to uh, say, you know, this EC2 instance over here that lived for five minutes was responsible for uh, this particular service, that service used, this data set over here, um, it's exposed to the internet through these sets of proxies. Uh, it was routable through this URL. Uh, this is the team who wrote the code. The code is written in Python. It uses these 12 different dependencies. Um, and to be able to map all of that together and have that all in one place so that you know we can look at it both as something happens but also to be able to look back historically and say um you know this weird packet came through and made it here um there's this library down here that is vulnerable to whatever came through that request Uh, we need to talk with this other team get them to fix that uh, get them to fix it quickly because hey we know this thing is exposed we also know it has access to data um and the the reality is we just need to let them know it's not something there, there's no real magic to this we're not doing automatic patching or doing a waf rule or, or you know so, some some magic box on the network it's simply having that intelligence of what is in the environment and relating it to the people who can fix it rapidly and to be able to detect that it happened and so that that's really that that's the moonshot that I'm working on right now is um up to date real time um complete situational awareness of what is going on in an envi- in our environment
0: that's an audacious goal <laughs> I think a lot <laughs> of people would love it yeah it's but it's it's funny it's like i think you know we've kind of gone through this this age the last couple of years is okay, we'll throw it, we'll get more data let's get more data points and then it's like okay, maybe we didn't, he kind of, uh, <laughs> sorry, you asked for that after a while. It's like, okay, now what do I do with this? And yeah, trying to do that core, too like, much data. Yeah. 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 I've, I've made some, uh, some bad analogies even in climbing and saying, it's kind of like turning a black light on in a hotel room. You just, you're not going to like what you see. <laughs> you finally see way too much. And it's a scary, gross thing, but yeah. it's, then how do you, how do you apply the right pressure to the right point? Um, it becomes an issue. Um, And, you know, it's once you start realizing there's a lot of areas of building a security program that if you move one lever here, how does it hurt another? Um, So how do you kind of think through this process of when you take the look at this huge surface area of saying, I'm going to focus on this one area?
1: Um, So it's really, you know, what are the dependencies? What are the, depends on something else? So if we look at, you know, vulnerability management, which um, is also a pretty fundamental uh, tenant of security is, hey, you have vulnerabilities, you should manage them. Um, but we see time and time again where that fails is, oh, there's this asset over here that I didn't even know about. Um, or there's this library embedded in my box over here. I, I didn't know that library existed. And if you had simply known that existed, you could have patched it Um You know before before the particular vulnerability was exploited and so you kind of work your way down to the stack um it's like the old um uh seven whys uh when you're doing uh manufacturing uh manufacturing quality uh work it way you work your way down as well why didn't i know and uh why didn't i know and you know what do i need to know and eventually you get down to hey um, asset management is actually really important. So the way that I figure what is most important is the things that are at the foundation, that are at uh, the basement uh, that you then have to build upon, that if you start with you know either no foundation, then it's just going to sink into the ground, or if you start with a bad foundation, then it falls over and collapses. So my prioritization model is work all the way down to um, what can have the biggest impact if I get it right?
0: What well, has that kind of multiplier factor? Sure. Exactly. Yeah, it, and it's funny, I, I kind of use a similar analogy. So we can't really build our uh, security program on a house of cards and focus on the top cards, just getting them right if you know, if we just breathe on the bottom and the whole thing comes down.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: You know, certainly part of, it, I'm sure, what your role is also dealing, as you mentioned, You know, kind of jump back to like the, the privacy and compliance, but... You have to interact with um, um, imagining a certain amount of the government, both in um, California state and other states and nationally. How does that go when you're trying to talk about data, privacy, security, how the application works on a regulation level with people that are focused on maybe governing and not cybersecurity?
1: Yeah. what I found interesting is we've had some conversations with, with regulators where uh, they didn't quite understand what they were asking for in terms of the privacy implications. Uh, and so they would ask a, a question that would seem rather innocuous to them it would seem perfectly normal. Um, but once you would sit down and talk with them uh, and explain really what, that, you know, what it is that they were asking, what would be exposed... Um, what they would then need to be responsible for protecting. Um, we've had several cases where the regulator has, has agreed with us and said, okay, well, we, we don't need that particular data field. Um, we're, we're very heavily regulated. Um, if you look at uh, it, just all of the airports in the U.S., um, every airport we have to have a separate agreement with in order to provide services there. And so every airport has its own regulations that it can apply to us, and so we end up having to have a lot of conversations, um, you know, all the way down to the airport level, to explain, you know, here here's our stance, here's the information that we can give you, um, and you're asking for this other thing, and and here's the implications of that, and y- you probably really don't need it once we sit down and really understand what your needs are and what what problems you're trying to solve.
0: Right. That does – yeah, it kind of makes sense. And it's, it's, it's weird how they – I've seen that happen in um, some of the regulations. Do, um, um, obviously, in your state in California, they just passed new state regulations uh, around data privacy. Colorado's – in my state, is starting to kind of gear up with those. And sometimes you read those and you kind of scratch your head and say, okay, where do they get this from? <laughs> where do they yeah. get Especially with, say, with some of the GDPR. It's like, okay, well, how, how are you going to in any way enforce this and regulate this? You might get what you asked for, but then how are you going to follow up on it? So that, that's always my concern when I see some of these regulations come down. It's like, okay, that might seem nice, but what's how is this really even going to work?
1: Yeah, I think there's um, there's some implications that regulators need to be worried about where they might actually uh, compel companies to make, make privacy worse um, in order to satisfy regulation. And um, I'm, I'm struggling for an example off the top of my head, but – that's something that regulators need to be more careful about is they might be making situations worse uh, when they're actually trying to improve things. Uh, and uh, I, I worry that we'll see more and more of that going forward uh, as we see more and more of these state-level privacy regulations.
0: Yes. And that's that's where I get that fear that your job's going to become much harder when you have. You know, I obviously deal a lot with data breach and we have 50 different states with different data privacy yes. notifications And I'm sure you have to deal with. It's, you know, where do you build a consensus on that? I'm saying, okay, is, is, you know, for my program is do I pick, you know, the worst case example and build it out across that? I mean, how do, you, how do you try to pick out of that, again, all these different regulations of here are the ones we need to really be the most concerned about and build compliance around?
1: Well, some of it is we start with we start from a place of let's do the right thing, and what I've found in security, it, if you start from let's do the right thing, that gets you most of the way for most regulations. Uh, sometimes it's a it's a case of proving that you're doing the right thing, um, and you know there's there's some inherent challenge in that, uh, but we just start with hey let's do the right thing, and then we start. Looking at well, where are the deviations? Um, wh- where are the where are the things that we need to go um, a little bit further? Or um, you know, a, a great example. Um, obviously, this isn't a, a regulation or a law, but imagine if it was something that said you must have a uh, an eight digit uh, pa- an eight character password. Um, and we look at that and say, well, that's kind of stupid. How about we uh, you know allow something longer? Uh, And so you then have to prove, well, okay, this longer one is actually better than the one that you're offering. Uh, And another place that we run into is um, uh, compliance frameworks that are expecting uh, that you have to force password changes on a certain interval. And if we're mandating uh, a a strong MFA solution, um, you know, maybe it's a a time-based token or something like that, we're technically changing the password every 30 seconds. Uh, and so we then have to sit down and explain, well, you know, we're we're actually meeting the spirit of what you're looking for, just not necessarily the letter. Uh, so it's really, you know, we start from do the right thing and then look at the edges and look at where the deltas are, figure out if we're already meeting that through some other control, and then we have to have the conversation. If we're not meeting it, um, is that because the the expectation doesn't make sense, or is it because you know maybe that's not something that applies to us, or on on the offhand chance, you know maybe that's a good idea that we had just missed uh, that that happens every once in a while.
0: Yeah, in in the fact that you can you can reset and so would you know kind of along some of those lines, it's interesting thinking about some of the fact that you know NIST came out with their framework for years, say ah oh, you know. It, this was the password complexity and they kind of come back to, say hey we're wrong and we have to have that ability yes. to say yeah let's re- readjust this it can't be written in stone
1: yeah i, th- I think you know to, just uh bouncing off that for a moment i think one of the people one of the things that people are really worried about in security um you know security professionals is not be- being willing to say i was wrong um you know and to be able to reset and have and say, you know what, I th- I was actually wrong. Let's let's you you've got you've got a good point. Let's go back and reset and, and let's take another cut at it. And and it's fine. Uh, I think that's that's one of the uh, one of my I guess even so pet peeves amongst a lot of security professionals is just not being willing to say I was wrong.
0: Yeah. Or or I don't know, or I I made this decision based on the information I had at the time and I have new information. That's, that's okay. Yep.
1: Yep. yep. It's, it's okay. And it's expected, right? I, I, you know, we should, uh, we should be changing our thought processes when we get new information.
0: Yeah. It's kind of a, a natural thing. Um, so, you know, we're, we're kind of looking towards the future now. I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask if you were building Skynet and the robots are all going to rise up and, and take <laughs> us over. But you know when, when, are we, when are we getting the automated cars? Is that something that's realistic? And what kind of different maybe privacy concerns do we not think about when we say, oh, wow, that's really cool, but? Uh,
1: so um, I, I can't really comment on the timeline. Um, that That is something that that Lyft is actively engaged in, and, and we have a program where we're developing autonomous vehicles. Uh, but at the same time, we have a program that's working on the security and data privacy of autonomous vehicles. And so hand in hand with the teams that are that are building the autonomous vehicles, we have teams that are helping out with the onboard security systems, with the back-end security systems, uh, with the uh, the privacy aspects and the privacy implications of, of what's being collected and um, it gets really interesting really quick um, you know that a, a good example um, you know that that we're're we're talking about is um, when there's nobody in, in the car when there's no driver um, how are you detecting uh, that maybe a passenger threw up in the car um, you know that' that does happen. Uh, today, we have drivers who realize this pretty quickly. Um, but in the future, when there's autonomous vehicles, how do you how do you recognize that? And there's ways of doing that, but that brings additional sensors to the car. And that's additional data that you have to collect that is different than what we would collect today. And so what are the privacy implications of that? And it, it, you end up with um, an interesting set of uh, challenges posed by not having drivers in the cars um, that we hadn't really thought about before, uh, and, and so there's there's a lot of work to be done, um, a lot of you know both on the security side and on the privacy side uh, for autonomous vehicles. Uh, but that's absolutely something that we've recognized from the beginning, and um, as we spun up the program to build autonomous vehicles. We spun up the program to secure uh, to secure autonomous vehicles and to ensure that our passengers' privacy was pr- was protected in autonomous vehicles. Definitely,
0: you know it's funny. I was I was there was something I heard. and I'm trying to remember if I can if I'm going to misquote this the statistically, but something like, you know, humans you know, humans driving cars. It's something like a, one of the top five, if not the top three, leading causes of deaths in America. So if you were to put out those stats of saying, well, look we're going to give uh you know a bunch of people your friends and neighbors i'm sure they're nice people but you know this you know multi-ton vehicle to drive around at 70 miles an hour at you if you pose that idea now out of the blue people would think you're insane right. but you know there there's a lot of safety features that can be built into two cars that are electronically connected and know how to avoid each other and when you're not re- relying on the human element
1: uh, absolutely i i've likened it to we're living in the age of the transition from horse-drawn carriages to cars, um, where for the longest time in cities you had horses, you know, walking down the streets. You had horses pulling, um, pulling carriages, and eventually cars came along. And at first, um, cars had to interact with horses, and that was when it when things were at their most dangerous. And that's um, Kind of most dangerous and most difficult. And that's kind of where we are right now in that we're in this period where we're doing autonomous vehicles while having humans driving around. And that does, that actually poses more of a challenge than if it was just autonomous vehicles everywhere. And so it's actually going to get easier once everything is autonomous to have cars communicate with cars. Uh, and, not have the human element and and that'll that'll actually be easier so right now is actually when it's at its hardest when we have humans and computers trying to you know trying to drive down the same street
0: yeah i i you know i I know where computers have their Issues, but I definitely think I would trust them more than again some of the people I do know that I loved dearly. But I <laughs> they worry me at times,
1: yeah. You're driving the front seat and you've got your your hands like clinched on whatever oh, yeah. you can clinch on. I, I really wish this was being driven by a computer right now,
0: yeah. You know, it's funny. I mean, I, I think there's probably I'd be more productive on my uh, speaking of you know, force multipliers, those you know, half an hour to 45 minutes a time in the day commuting, I, I could be doing all those things if the if the car was driving oh, yeah. itself, you know. <laughs>
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, Mike, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where, where can people find you uh, online?
1: Uh, so best place to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, just search for Mike Johnson security on LinkedIn. You're going to find me pretty quickly. Um, you can reach out, you know, connect with me on, on LinkedIn. We can have messages, uh, back and forth. Um, you can also come to lift.com slash jobs and, uh, take a look at everything that we're hiring for. Uh, and, uh, if any of those strike your fancy, uh, reach out and have a conversation about those as well.
0: Oh, great. I'll be uh, sure to put all that in the show notes and online.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for having me. This was, uh, this was a great chat. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And we'll uh, talk soon. All right. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks, we'll talk soon.